0: Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. It sure is great to be back on the air. And what's even better is that there is a new season in store. Or rather, I should say, a new book topic series discussion. But hey, whichever way you want to call it, whether you want to refer to it as a new book topic series discussion or a new uh, podcast season, the bottom line is we're going in a new direction. And that is we're going to be uh, learning about a a different um, segment of um, history, of uh, American history, rather, I should say. But it's a segment uh, that many of you all probably do know about, but you probably did not really get the full story. It's easy to assume that what we're going to be learning about may have been what we would call an incident that may have only lasted like just a couple of days. But yet as we get older and we learn through documentaries and even through reading a book about the topic, we learn that the uh, movement itself originated earlier than, than anticipated. But then again, movements and events themselves just don't happen overnight and end overnight. They evolve over a course of time, and then it takes a couple of um, incidents to where it becomes one of... Um, uh, like uh, like a tinderbox for example like you know with the situation in boston that eventually led to the infamous boston massacre of 1770 so a lot of times events can become uh tinderboxes where it's just a matter of time before the situation at hand can explode to where there ultimately might not be any means of re- reaching um Reconciliation, or reaching even a a compromise where both sides can walk away on more modified terms. So where is it that exactly we're going to be going in this new uh, podcast series? Well, I'll tell you this much. Uh, We will be in the 18th century. We are uh, going to be uh, going into the uh, final decade of the 18th century, being that of the 1790s. Now, of course, you know, when one says the 1790s, that sounds vague, because uh, the 1790s in America, a lot of things happened. But there's one particular event that has often been overlooked, and it was really considered to be America's first uh, internal crisis. That is, America's first internal crisis as a young republic. I mean, you know, it's easy to assume that, well, okay, we defeated the mightiest um, military empire in the world and we got our political freedom from England. Shouldn't we all be good to go? Not necessarily. I think if we're smart enough to remember that even after the Treaty of Paris had taken place, we really weren't out of the woods. You know, here we were living under this Articles of Confederation, Thirteen entities, all distrustful of a central government. Everybody pretty much uh, shooting down what the central government had to offer. Thirteen entities, you know, coining their own money, declaring war, regulating their own commerce, interstate, intrastate. Then you have rebellions, Most, the most infamous of all being Shays' Rebellion. For those of you who were with me when we talked about Shays' Rebellion last year, um, that was really the final um, straw that broke the camel's back. And after Shays' Rebellion, George Washington knew right then and there that something else had to be done. Something else had to take effect that was much better than the Articles of Confederation. And long story short, 1787, uh, from May of 1787 to September 17th of 1787 delegates uh, rather 55 delegates met in Philadelphia eventually 39 only signed the, the United States Constitution but as Benjamin Franklin said it may not be the most perfect of documents but it's the best we could come up it's the best we could come up with and we're going to call this government a republic it's up to you all in the present generation as to whether or not you can keep this government, and it's also going to be up to where we, in the present generation, will, how we will uh, set good examples for those coming forward in the future. So, by the time George Washington becomes president in 1789, America is still facing uh, lots of challenges. So I think it's probably fair to say by now that we should go ahead and start focusing on uh, the prologue to where we're going to be going next. And uh, towards the end of the prologue, I will uh, reveal to you all the, uh, the book title uh, series of our next uh, podcast uh, topic discussion. So here we go with our uh, prologue. June seventeen ninety four marked sixteen months since President George Washington began his second term of office. Despite battling ailments from from low level fevers to inflamed gums, uh, and real quick for those of you who aren't sure about the inflamed gums, George Washington, uh, by the time before he even reached the age of fifty, he had lots of uh, tooth problems. And eventually, the majority of his teeth had to be replaced uh, with, um, if I'm not mistaken, with like fragments of uh, either elephant or uh, walrus tusks. But it was a very, very uncomfortable feeling, to say the least. And if you all go to Mount Vernon, um, they should have um, his uh, teeth on display in terms of the false wooden teeth he wore. So when you hear of inflamed gums, think about the... uh, false teeth that uh, Washington was forced uh, to have to wear for the remaining uh, duration of his life. President Washington, at 62 years old, truly felt his age, along with never imagining he would be serving a second term. Now, let's keep in mind, uh, June 1794, George Washington, 62 years old, that is considered to be old because most people don't make it past If you lived to be 50 years old back then, you've lived a long life. Most people don't make it to the age of 50, although it is fair to say that people living in New England have longer life expectancies than those living in the southern colonies, but for George Washington to have made it to 62 at this point is considered old age. From the time he first took office in April 1789, The new American republic constantly faced one set of problems, followed by others pertaining to survival. And believe me, folks, uh, America's young republic, even in Washington's first days, uh, one challenge pertained to uh, making the most uh, simplest of payments that pertained to to, uh, outstanding debts. So think about it, folks, I mean, you know, we don't have a modern-day Federal Reserve system just yet, but here we are facing the most daunting of challenges, and even, and they're not all daunting, but some of them are basic challenges, but yet it's a question of whether or not those basic challenges can be met. Now, um, to give you an example of some other uh, major challenges uh, facing that George Washington faced prior to and around June of 1794, the The young American Republic is having to deal with uh issues along the high seas such as the British Royal Navy seizing u s ships and their uh not just their cargo but their crew. This is means of intimidation. you know here I thought we had gotten everything resolved with England where we have not not only did we win our political independence, I would have thought that hey, maybe we had won some economic independence, but nope. The high seas are not our friends, and as long as Britain continues to harass us on the high seas, we're not going to be able to enjoy the the fruits of liberty. The British army is adamantly refusing to abandon forts on the U.S. territory. And there remains an ever-growing presence behind Indian wars along the frontier, which resulted in destruction over progress. You know, George Washington's come up with several grand envisions for westward um, exploration with uh, westward settlements in what we now know as the Northwest Territory that comprises of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, and uh, northeast Minnesota. The problem is that we are struggling to... um, be able to make our way into these uh, settlements we've we've had some success but we haven't really had a whole lot of uh, 100% uh, success We are getting um, trampled on by uh, Indians uh, whom uh, whom are letting us know that you know they are the ones um, who own these ancestral lands and they are running the show by telling us that look we're not welcomed They see us as invasive species, folks. We're not Native. We really weren't even Native going into 1607 when the first English people uh, arrived in what we now know as Jamestown, Virginia. But even in 1794 in the Northwest Territory, several Indian tribes are coming together, banding, rather, I should say, together, and waging war on this new um, American Republic by letting us know that, hey, look, no matter how hard you try, you're not going to get a hold of our ancestral lands. But I wonder just how long uh, luck for the Indians will last along the frontier. It's, uh, they, these are very um, tense times. And if there's one thing George Washington is wanting, but yet many people are still against it, George Washington wants a national army, but yet many in Congress are skeptical because they don't like the idea of standing armies in times of peace. So, if these issues alone were daunting enough for President Washington to tackle, earlier in his first term, the cabinet from within saw Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton, Treasury Secretary, engage in partisan warfare over how the government should be administered. Internal strife from within led President Washington to believe that politics on party levels would become the greatest undoing of America's young republic. And for those of you who aren't familiar with uh, the political differences between Jefferson and Hamilton, real brief, uh, Thomas Jefferson believed in a government that... Um, that. Uh, was based upon um, all things agrarian, that the uh, government catered to um, the interests of the farmers, whereas Alexander Hamilton believed that it was the wealthy and the well educated who should be running the government. These differences, while they are real, But it became a constant problem for George Washington, where Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton were pretty much out to get each other. And what do you know, three years before Washington's um, farewell exit happens, one of the things that Washington will administer before he leaves the office is the warnings of political parties, or I should say factions it's fair to say that washington sees enough problems from within to know that if things don't get under control not just from a domestic uh, standpoint but from um, but from internally from within the cabinet then how can this young republic function properly it's one thing to have differences but for washington people have to learn how to disagree without being disagreeable and he has seen um Two men whom he has a great deal of respect for, for the most part, act as though they're children and that they can't put their differences aside and uh, learn how to work together constructively. June 1794 saw George Washington finally get some much-needed respite by journeying home to his beloved Mount Vernon estate. But while en route to Mount Vernon, he made a brief stop which involved overseeing construction of America's current, present-day capital city, Washington, D.C. Of course, at the time, it was referred to as the federal uh, city, or the Columbian federal city. Remember, folks, Washington is the, the current capital in 1794 is in Philadelphia. Congress had passed a few years earlier in 1790 called the Residency Act, which pretty much set up a temporary establishment in Philadelphia, and that by 1800, the capital would be officially relocated from Philadelphia to what we now know as Washington, D.C. But in 1794, all George Washington could see were two buildings and open fields of wilderness. I'm beginning to wonder... Is this, was this really a grand idea to build a capital in what we now know as the open, and what we referred to back then, or as many people did, the open wilderness? For President Washington, the two buildings being constructed were significant as they represented institutions of government, the Congressional Building and the President's House. So we don't have a modern-day Capitol Building just yet, folks. We don't have a house that's probably going to be called the White House just yet, but we do have a congressional building and a president's house. However, most people viewed the new government location site with skepticism. There were many who wished to have the Capitol still remain in Philadelphia, and there were many uh, who lived in Annapolis, and Baltimore, Alexandria, Arlington, what we now know as Arlington, who, who really just saw this uh, new location as nothing more as a um, as a waste, a dump. It just wasn't attractive, but yet Washington saw something different, that the rest of those other people just did not want to see or just couldn't come to grips with. President Washington envisioned. The new capital city surrounded by a state similar to Mount Vernon, whose focuses revolved around all things agrarian and mercantile from north to south and vice versa. Besides owning vast amounts of land along the Potomac River, including Mount Vernon, and believe it or not, folks, George Washington did own other properties along the Potomac River. So, you know, it's easy to assume that it was just Mount Vernon, but he had at least five or six other uh, properties along the Potomac River in his lifetime, uh, especially after having married um, his wife, uh, Martha uh, Custis. So, uh, President Washington, I should point out here that um, President Washington had other land holdings to the West, which promised further potential behind linking commercial activities from the frontier and making their way down into the Potomac and and eventually embark along the waters of the Chesapeake Bay to the Atlantic Ocean for a final destination, 3,000 miles across the ocean, Europe, not just Europe, but the various trade markets of European cities like London, Paris, Madrid, just to name a few uh a few European cities, but it probably would be fair to say that uh that the majority of that the majority, if not all of these goods, would be making their way to like London, uh, Paris, Madrid. We must keep in mind, folks, that the three European superpowers, even when President Washington is in office, are England, France, and Spain. There is no Germany just yet. And Italy, while it's there. It's not the same Italy that we probably think of in today's time. Although Washington himself had been a professional surveyor since 1749, before he became a professional surveyor, he um, apprenticed um, to uh, Lord Fairfax. So, although Washington Washington himself had been a professional surveyor since 1749, he too, like other surveyors before him, were perplexed behind making the Potomac River navigable. Prior to Washington's ascending the presidency, he developed an insatiable obsession behind making the Potomac River accessible for transporting goods as far west as the Ohio River Valley through means of better transportation, and I must point out, though, that if, there, that if any one of our founding fathers had grand envisions for better means of transportation prior to uh, firing shots around the world, but most notably after the um, Revolutionary War came to an end, it was George Washington. He was the one that laid the blueprints out for um, better means of inland navigation. So, in other words, when you think of canals, it maybe it's fair to say that we should uh, think of George Washington as being the father of American canals. Unfortunately, Washington had passed away well before the Erie Canal would come along, but I will say this, if George Washington could have seen the Erie Canal, I know he would have been in awe of the, of the canal itself, knowing that it... Um, knowing that it goes 365 miles from uh, New York City along its Hudson River all the way to Buffalo, New York. To me, that is beyond an incredible imaginary engineering feat. It's just a shame Washington was not alive to see that happen. But in 1785, the Potomac Company, whom Washington had been chosen as its president, began building the five-part system, which wasn't fully completed until 1802, three years after his death, and ironically in 1802, that was also the same year that his wife, uh, Martha Dandridge Custis Washington, passed away. But in the midst of financial challenges, to fluctuations involving labor shortages, Washington's grand dream behind connecting the Potomac and Ohio Rivers all the way eastward to the Atlantic Ocean ended in misfortunes. As for June of seventeen ninety-four, he left Mount Vernon, but he didn't leave. He didn't leave on the best of terms. It had nothing to do with um, with um, overseers. It had nothing to do with um, a disagreement with his wife. It hadn't. What happened was that he was um, spending a lot of time on horseback, making trips back and forth over his estate, and watching this uh, construction work along the canal, the Potomac uh, Canal, but unfortunately his horse got stuck in the water. Luckily for Washington, he wasn't thrown off the horse, but he injured his back trying to guide the horse out of harm's way. So for George Washington's ride back to Philadelphia, it wasn't any easier, not just so much with back pain problems, but how about due to bad weather, which resulted in the longer arrival time being seven days versus the average of five. And on top of that, he contracted a... A bad cold. I don't know why all that seems important, but we do have to keep in mind that um, that even in the 18th century, think about it folks, there's no Air Force One. We're not anywhere close to having a, an airplane. So George Washington's um, horse and carriage ride to and from Philadelphia to Mount Vernon and vice versa, it might as well be his own little equivalent Instead of Air Force One, we might as well call it the um, Air Force uh, Horse and Buggy. So this is what's getting him uh, to and from uh, point A to point B. And of course, we should keep in mind that he doesn't have what we now know in today's time as uh, Secret Service protection. But the bottom line is, if the weather was just right, he could make it from Philadelphia back home to Mount Vernon in five days. Five days does seem like a long time, but we also have to remember... Washington was probably stopping at taverns on the way um, back home to Mount Vernon to uh, attend um, a political um, meeting or just to uh, meet with friends, uh, business. So let's keep in mind, there's no such thing as U.S. 301, U.S. 1, Interstate 95. There's no capital Beltway. But the fact of the matter is that it's not a race against time for Washington, but journeying back home within five days is really, it's, it's peace. In other words, he doesn't, he doesn't have to worry about distractions, but at the same time, Washington himself is probably not immune from getting bad news at a moment's notice. So even in the midst of his not feeling his best, Washington attended a dinner shortly upon returning back to Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Think about it. No, no phones, no, um, no text messages or emails saying, oh, by the way, when you return back to Philadelphia, you do have a dinner to attend. So by the time he returns, he knows that he's just been informed that he's got a dinner to attend. Whereas this dinner involved meeting a party, not just an ordinary party, but it was a delegation group of Chickasaw Indians, President Washington, after having met with the delegation uh, group of Chickasaw Indians, had to prepare himself for one more formal dinner. But this was not with another Indian tribal delegation group, nor did it involve congressional members. Instead, this next formal dinner pertained to something troubling, which we might refer to in modern day times as national security. The matter brought before President Washington pertained to federal law enforcement within the confines of western Pennsylvania and the Ohio River. How ironic that along the confines of western Pennsylvania's frontier lands and knowing that western Pennsylvania is not far from the Ohio River, it just so happens that this area was home to native land holdings that George Washington himself had had a long interest and desire for some time. Well before he became president, folks, Washington had invested in um, land speculation dealings in western Pennsylvania, what we now know as um, Ohio. It was one thing to receive troubling news, but then again, President Washington, by 1794, had experienced his fair share of obtaining reports on all things uncertain troubling which impacted america's young republic however what president washington would soon discover became something the young republic had not gone up against the troubling ordeal along western pennsylvania's frontier lands had its origins tracing back 3 years earlier to to the fall of 1791 where settlers first began demonstrating their hostilities by attacking customs collectors. Customs collectors, you know, when I often think of customs collectors in the 18th century, I often think of um, customs collectors whom were harassed, threatened, tarred, and feathered in Boston, Massachusetts, all because they were appointed by the king. And, of course, Bostonians adamantly said that, you know, we had no say in whom was to come onto our turf and collect, the taxes. And, of course, uh, many in uh, Massachusetts harassed the tax collectors to the point where many resigned. Many There were some who actually uh, resigned but decided to uh, swear an allegiance against the Crown, and by doing so, they were immune from all further harassments. So, yes, In the fall of 1791, settlers first began demonstrating their hostilities by attacking customs collectors, whom were trying to collect taxes. Not just local taxes or state taxes, but how about federal taxes? Maybe it's fair to say that these customs collectors are the equivalent to modern-day IRS agents, or what we would think of even back in uh, colonial times, And as we progress towards the 19th century, we would think of as uh, constables, um, debt collectors. The bottom line is that since the beginning of time, there have been people um, who have held titles of um, revenue collectors or collections, uh, officer collection, uh, uh, collection officers, you know, people whose um, job it is to um, secure money based upon, you know, outstanding debts make sure that the government gets the money that it needs. But it wasn't so much that the, set, that the uh, customs collectors are trying to collect taxes in general. Yes, they are trying to collect tax, federal taxes, but it has to do with a popular American product where these federal taxes are needing to be um, obtained. This popular American product would be none other than hard liquor, otherwise known as whiskey. The tax on whiskey was unique because it marked the first time that America's government had imposed a tax upon an item. Taxes on whiskey were intended to create revenue for the existing debts from the Revolutionary War. Folks, we have probably about, from what I read there's probably at least $7.5 million in outstanding debt. That's a conservative estimate, but that was a lot of money to be in debt from the Revolutionary War. So, for President Washington and his Treasury Secretary, Alexander Hamilton, they need to come up with new strategies. They need to come up with strategies as soon as possible so that the federal government will eventually be able to operate in the green versus being in the red because right now we're still in the red but yet here we've got frontier people in opposition to um, wanting to uh, pay taxes to the government and I'm beginning to wonder why they would be so hostile towards wanting to pay uh, taxes on a, a popular American product. Well, maybe we should find that out. Settlers along western Pennsylvania's frontier lands weren't totally opposed to taxes altogether. Okay, that's a good sign of relief right there. So uh, we know that they're not anti-tax people altogether, but at the same time, they're not opposed to being taxed, but instead their dismay centered upon improper taxation. Okay, when I think of improper taxation, I've often, I often think of that famous phrase from the American Revolution period, uh, taxation without representation. Of course, as John Adams uh, once said, uh, prior to the shots being fired around the world at Lexington and Concord from April the 19th of 1775, John Adams uh, said the following, it's one thing to tax an Englishman but if you don't get his consent, then, then any means of taxation is uh, void, um, invalid, it's um, irrelevant. Of course, I don't know if he said all those words, but I just remember a, a quote where he said that, you know, it's one thing to tax an Englishman, but you must obtain his consent. So, okay, improper taxation... What could it mean here, going into uh, the 1790s? For those uh, individuals living along western Pennsylvania's frontier lands, their dismay, yes, centers upon improper taxation, but what it means here is that recipients, the recipients receiving all collected revenues lied at the top of the chain. Those whom received the collected revenues at the top of the chain were amongst a select few, well to do. We're not just talking about you know the wealthy people, but they saw the uh, customs collectors being at the top because for one, they were wor- they worked for the government, but they feared that um, that the customs collectors getting the um, the revenue, It would uh, leave the little guys out of power. It would leave the little guys not so much out of power. It would leave them out of the um, greater um, political debate. It would leave them out of um, having any uh, proper and legit say in their government. Farmers and tradesmen faced constant fears from debt foreclosures on their properties to ultimately becoming landless workers. And the presence of a, of a whiskey tax alone to these men added further tension behind outstanding economic differences between the few, the few, or what we refer to as the elite, versus many people. When I think of the many, perhaps it might be fair to say in the late 18th century, we could still think of them as the middling families, the lower classes. Because think about it, you know, not everybody you know it's one thing to be in the government but is it fair to say that those who are representing the government are those who are of well to do status yes and it's not so much the fact that they have 5 or 6 million dollars for alexander hamilton uh, the reason why he believed that the wealthy and the well educated ought to be running the government is because if you um, if you had vast knowledge on a variety of subjects, and you worked in the profession that you had um, a great deal of knowledge in, then you then your voice carries a lot of weight, and you will be able to um, bring um, essential information back home to your constituents. And of course, how how would you define constituents in the eighteenth century? Those whom are on the same level as you are, whom share the same interests. Not just personal interests, but interests that are um, personal, uh, well, commercial in terms of like up in New England, like mercantilism. Given that the uh, New England economy is uh, primarily manufacturing, uh, it's a little bit more, well, it would be fair to say that in the 1790s, we have not gotten to... um, to the uh, level of industrialization just yet. That won't happen until uh, well after 1800, so we are still primarily an agrarian economy, but in New England we're dealing with more manufacturing versus where in the southern colonies we're seeing more agrarian. So for Alexander Hamilton, if you are very well um, knowledgeable on not just one subject but a handful of other subjects you are, you know, obviously very well educated in those manners or in those matters, then you should definitely be allowed to have a voice in your government versus someone who has really minimal knowledge on a handful of subjects. Why should that person be going into the government? It doesn't sound right, but that was his um, language and um, interpretation of who should be... um, of who should be running the government uh during this the time of the 18th century. So yes, I could see how though for those people who are farmers and tradesmen would have faced constant fears, knowing that their um that their properties could be confiscated from them, to where their status would be reduced even more, to where they're they are basically landless workers. You know, these these farmers, you know, they're middling uh they're, they've come from the middling uh, status. They are probably making no more than twelve pounds a year. They don't. They can't uh, afford to squander their money away compared to someone who um, who owns uh, well over ten thousand acres of land. If you have ten thousand acre, or acres or, or more of land, you're doing all right. You know, if if you lost a little bit of money, you might still be okay. But for someone, uh, but for a middling family making 12 pounds a year, if they lost a couple of pounds of money due to a bad investment, good luck trying to make up for that um, for that loss before, say, year's end. The farmers, uh, tradesmen, hunters to Indian fighters, were veterans of French and Indian to American Revolutionary Wars. And these people... We have to remember, folks, these people aren't, um, they're not dumb. They're not, um, they're not of uh, hillbilly status, I'll tell you that much. These are um, veterans. In other words, these farmers, tradesmen, hunters, Indian fighters, they have seen experience in two wars, two recent wars, French and Indian in American revolutionary wars and so these uh people or rather i should say these men therefore have displayed excellent means they have dis- they have displayed excellent means behind fighting along the frontier when danger no matter how big or small it is arises from the fall 1791 and onward the frontiersmen had proven to customs collectors just how hostile they were behind whiskey tax implementation by going as far believe it or not, folks, these um these frontiersmen um or frontiers yeah, frontiersmen went as far as um going um to such extremes as uh tarring and feathering customs collectors. Although frontier rebels were united behind resisting the whiskey tax, there were some rebels whom envisioned a western frontier full of religious reform where people could worship freely without any governmental interference, including an equal system of justice where everyday common people, being small farmers, artisans, could prosper while the big guys, being the bankers and the well-to-do landowners, got closely monitored. It sounds like these um, sounds like a big uh, block of these um, people along the western frontier are showing signs of what we would call early uh, versions of uh, progressives. Of course, the progressive movement didn't come until obviously the eighteen nineties, but it's fair to say that even the frontiers people have a little bit of a progressivism in them, and you know, in terms of. Um, in terms of having the uh, bankers and the well-to-do landowners be closely monitored, it sounds like it's their version of wanting uh, tighter regulations. Other rebels sought to remove big mis- businessmen altogether by labeling them as traitors, even if they lived east of the Appalachians. Wow, it seems like these those who want to remove the big businessmen altogether uh, sound a little bit extreme. It seems as though they don't care they wouldn't care if they burnt any bridge no matter how big or small it was they just see those living east of the appalachians really as the enemy for the frontier peoples of western pennsylvania what mattered to them was that they had a voice but ensuring that taxes collected did not favor one side versus the other so in other words for the for the people of western pennsylvania They want to be, um, they don't want to be forgotten, but these are people that are not making big bucks each year. They want to be able to reap in the rewards for their hard work, but what they don't want to see have happen, really, is that all of their rewards and all their efforts get reaped by those whom are considered the few and the elite whom would not value those below what started out in the fall of 1791 as isolated attacks on customs officials eventually became more troublesome to the eyes of authorities eastward two years later and onward by 1794 given the movement itself was now regional but one whose roots originated along tributaries of the Ohio River in western Pennsylvania. After uh, learning what had transpired along Pennsylvania's western frontier in June 1794, President Washington knew right then and there that he would not be returning to Mount Vernon anytime soon. Although he was no longer a commander-in-chief, Washington made the ultimate sacrifice by going above and beyond to raise nearly nearly 13,000 federal troops whose mission was to go west over the Appalachian Mountains and suppress an uprising led by armed disenchanted American frontier people whom sought to carry out their own secession movement against the United States Folks You know, when we often think of secession, it is fair to say that it's so easy to assume that the only time secession happened in America's history was during the United States Civil War. But I should point out that even in America's earliest years as a young republic, there was no 100% uh, unity. There were states whom wanted to secede because of political uh, differences, the most, um, the most prominent one that I had learned about some years back was uh, when I first started doing more research on the War of 1812 and what led up to it, because that's often been referred to as America's Forgotten War, but the New England states were going to uh, secede from uh, the Union largely because of what Thomas Jefferson's Embargo Act of 1807 had done. Our American uh, sailors were already being impressed along the high seas, as it was, and Jefferson felt that the best way to deter the um, impressment, that is, American sailors being captured and forced against their own will to um, serve in the British Navy, Jefferson felt that if the um, American government placed an embargo on Britain and France, that it would cripple their economies. Well, Jefferson, as as brilliant as an idea as it was, because Jefferson believed that that Americans should be resorting to making more goods domestically versus have, shipping them overseas three thousand miles across the ocean. The one thing Jefferson didn't realize was that not everyone had access to um, machines that could produce uh, textile goods, anything manufacturing. While, yes, pe- there were people who owned those types of machines, but not everyone did. So long story short, when Jefferson signed the Embargo Act, it pretty much put 10,000 um, New Englanders out of work. Think about it, New Englanders working along the docks, the ports of Boston, Marblehead, Salem, Massachusetts, Newport, Rhode Island, uh, New York City, um, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, just to name a few uh places along um, within the New England uh, region who would have been uh, uh, profoundly devastated by this Embargo Act. And so therefore, uh, eventually over time, a few years later, uh, after Jefferson left office, the Embargo Act was repealed. But the bottom line is, is that what looked great on paper uh, lost its uh, luster um, when it actually hit those whom whose livelihoods were dependent upon that uh, line of work for economic reasons. So the bottom line is, is that secession has been a part of has existed in America's republic even in its earliest years um from the time George Washington became president. What started out as a uh as a tax on American uh on an American domestic good being whiskey in 1791 eventually led to rebellion and dissent amongst America's people along the frontiers of western Pennsylvania, therefore bringing about what we know as the Whiskey Rebellion. An event full of national tension, but one which produced problems. Believe it or not, it was an event that was full of national tension, but one that also produced problems from within the government. Whereas President Washington and Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton advocated the use of military force against America's people, Edmund Randolph, who was the nephew of the late Peyton Randolph, who was the president of the uh, First uh, Continental Congress in 1775 up until his untimely death and John Hancock of Massachusetts, of course, uh, was the one that ultimately replaced Peyton Randolph when he passed away. But Edmund Randolph was the nephew of the late Peyton Randolph. Edmund Randolph went on to uh, replace uh, Thomas Jefferson when Jefferson stepped down as Secretary of State at the end of 1793. Edmund Randolph, whereas uh, President Washington and Treasury Secretary Hamilton had advocated the use of military force against America's people edmund randolph opposed using it putting down a rebellion is one thing but but extinguishing the fires from within a presidential cabinet at a time of crisis posed all the more troubling as america engaged as america was about to be engaged in her first war but on her own soil as a young republic whose endless challenges showed no signs of letting up well, our official title to our new uh, podca- podcast topic series is The Whiskey Rebellion George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, and the Frontier Rebels Who Challenged America's Newfound Sovereignty by William Hogland. I know that we're going to be in for a great uh, series, folks, and we're going to um, learn lots of um, great uh, information. I, you know, I had learned before in the past about the whiskey rebellion, but I really never knew a whole lot about it, other than that there was opposition towards this um, tax. Well, it's one thing to be opposed towards the tax, but there has to be other reasons behind why there is a greater conflict from within. So it, it is fair to say that, um, and we should be reminded that uh, not all frontiers people are against taxes. But what they want is equal taxation. In other words, we want to be able to reap in the rewards for our hard work, but we don't want to see our rewards go to waste only to have the uh, few and the elite benefit from our work and, and only for us to be left out to dry or to rot. Well, thank you for your time, uh, as always, and when I'm on the air again next, uh, we're going to uh, be talking about a particular individual and why, his, um, and why he is of importance, because um, he plays a big part in a uh, city in uh, what we now know as western Pennsylvania. I can tell you this much, the, uh, the city was established before his arrival— But his presence alone is very important, and we will also learn about um, some other uh, unique um, reasons behind why uh, Western Pennsylvania was so significant. It's not so much that it's the frontier, but why it held significance even before the first shots were fired around the world against the British at Lexington and Concord. Well, thank you again uh, for being such ardent listeners. I look forward to being back on the air uh, next time. Uh, But, of course, I always look forward to being on the air with you guys. If I didn't enjoy it, then I know something wouldn't be right with me. But thank you for your time, as always, and uh, take care for now. And wherever you all may live in the world, continue to stay safe.